Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's get back to John here. John 12, um, 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees. So this is this is Sunday, really, here. This is Palm Sunday. The other day is, yeah. And went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So they heard Jesus was coming. Now, again, we know from the other gospel accounts, the... Uh, how Christ went out and got the the donkey to ride on into Jerusalem, um, and this of course fulfills what prophecy? Yeah, it's coming sitting on a on a donkey's colt, Zechariah nine nine, and also Isaiah forty nine, forty verse nine. Um, Okay. Actually, actually, it's the MacArthur Study Bible. That's a that's, that's a good thing here, you know. Um, but the the whole point here is that is that this was Christ fulfilling prophecy coming now. Why a donkey? Why not a horse? Humility, right? It certainly fulfills the prophecy. I mean, Christ is coming in humility, and what are people saying? Hosanna! Blessed He comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is the fickle crowd, right? This is the fickle crowd. What did Christ? What, what really precipitated them saying this? You think? Yeah, the the battle is coming. He's going to come in, and we're going to get rid of the Romans here. And why? What made them really think he could do that? What did he have just done? What did he raise somebody from the dead? I mean, that's wow. You know, I mean, this is great. Even if you get killed, he'll just raise you from the dead. That's sort of a bummer for the Romans, right? They can kill you and he'll you'll just rise again. Um, but you you see that and remember that the there are some that said, you know, tell the people to shut up. What would he say? What did Christ say about that? <laughs> the rocks would cry out if they didn't. This is Christ presenting himself to the nation as king. This is the presentation of the king. All right. Now, when Christ came there, um, we don't have that the, the account here. But when Christ came in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where did he go? Any other gospel accounts? Where did he go? We're right up to the temple. And what did he find there? Nothing's changed, has it? Nothing's changed. Now, th- this is, was Christ the Messiah of Israel? That's not a trick question. Yes, he was. Was the offer to Israel for the kingdom at this time, was it a bona fide valid offer? Oh, yeah, it was. What was the requirement for the kingdom to come? To accept him as the Messiah, and and how is that acceptance to be 
indicated? And repentance, right? <laughs> Remember earlier on when Christ and John the Baptist first began their ministry, they preached the gospel of the kingdom. And what was that gospel? What was the good news of the kingdom that they preached? Right. It was not the four spiritual laws. Don't let anybody tell you that they were preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They weren't doing that. They were preaching, repent, the king is here. The king is here. And as a nation, what did Israel do? Reject him. Were there some that repented? Well, sure there were. But as a nation, they did not. And how was it personified? How was it made evident that the nation had rejected him? Because all the leaders had rejected him. And when he went to the temple to see, are the people repenting? Have they turned back to God? The answer was no. They're the money changers. They're the sellers of the of the of the temple concessions, the selling of the sacrifices, nothing's changed in four years, four times. Some say it, it may have been many as four times. Christ cleansed the temple. Nothing's changed. The people have not repented. In fact, Christ wept over Jerusalem, and what did what was when he wept over Jerusalem? What did he say? But you would not. Now, with well, what we just said in Hebrews, but in mind, let's go back to Matthew and let's look at this triumphal entry. In chapter 23. We have Christ who went up to the temple and he pronounces these woes on the Pharisees. Woe to them as blind guides, whitewashed tombs, sepulchers full of dead men's bones, cups that look good on the outside and inside they're full of corruption. And he said, uh, verse 29, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the their, their tombs, but you're the fathers are the ones that killed them. He said, I sent you prophets and wise men, verse 34. He called them snakes. Whoa, that's, that's pretty PC. Right? And then in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall, know, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. How do you understand that being a good sovereign of God believer? How do you interpret Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem? How are you to understand that? Well, if he's sovereign, why didn't they why didn't he make him believe, right? Right? Of course it's not his way. 
See, that's where you got to remain a little bit schizo on this. Okay, you got to remain. You got to understand. Yeah, there's the sovereignty of God. We know that. But you also have the threat of human responsibility and choice throughout the scriptures. And both run parallel. And we don't understand how they connect up in the mind of God, but they are there. Israel would not repent. Why would they not repent? Because they wanted their sin more than they wanted their Messiah. Or here's another one. They wanted their Messiah on their terms. Now, are people like that today? Look, you take God on his terms, not yours. And yet there are people out there who are dying and going to hell every day because they somehow think that God will take them on their terms. It doesn't work that way. Is that the modern hardening of the heart? Is that what we get now? Because you say that there comes a point in time when you can't believe. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to me that the people who can't believe now are the intellectuals who have created their own God. Right. We don't want the God of the Bible. We want our own God. You know, you go to the average college professor at Oberlin College and give him the gospel, he'll laugh you out of the office. It's ridiculous. It's foolishness. It's moronic to him. Just look at how they're handling the creation. Yeah. We're and that's that's a simple thing of ignorance. They just don't want to believe. The same thing with the flood. They just don't want to believe it. Understand how... If there's anything you get out of the class here, understand the depth of unbelief. If God does not open your eyes, you can't believe because you will not believe because you don't want to believe. And you're responsible for that rejection. The Bible clearly teaches that. See, there are some that, you know, one of the problems with, with um, when, you, when you talk about predestination is there's a, some people say, well, you believe in double predestination. What they mean by that is God's ordained you to go to heaven and he's ordained that you go to hell. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach double predestination. The Bible teaches that if God did not elect some, all of us would go to hell without any interference on God's part. We don't need to be predestined to hell. We're on our way there because of our own rebellion. And the Bible clearly says that those who refuse Christ do so at their own peril. They can't stand before the judgment seat of God and say, well, now, wait a minute. If you had elected me, I would have believed it's all your fault. I'm going to hell. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Throughout the scripture, again, the onus is on the unbeliever, you will not believe. Christ, remember, just go back and read John 6, 7, and 8. Again, again, Christ is telling them, you won't believe, you won't believe, you won't believe. Now, why won't they believe? Well, from the divine perspective, it's because the Father has not granted them the, opportun the, 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 the belief that they need. He's not allowed it. The Father's not allowed them to believe. But their unbelief is their own doing. Is that making any sense there? Almost every Monday night I class with my ethics instructor at Christ. Yeah. As we talked about these ethical views, 
I make statements and then people go back and say, well, there's no way to know for sure about God and, you know, all of these things. And he's clashing almost every day mm-hmm. over this. And, and you're right. There are those who just will not. No, they will not believe. What? They will not believe. And God holds them responsible for their rejection. The scripture is very clear on that. It's very clear. You will not come to me. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned this before a few times. Now, you know, my oldest son, my first name, 37. That's what he's been doing for the last three years, just spending all his time in libraries, reading every philosophy, atheist, Eastern philosophy, New Age, totally convinced and rejected. He's read the Bible, too. No way. Can't be judgment. Can't be, you know, he just, like you said, he just completely rejects it, rejects it. He's hardened to it. You know, he, he tells me, no, you know, you know, do you ever listen to Lenin? Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no heaven. I said, Bart, I said, he probably knows the truth now. You know? Yeah. yeah, he knows <laughs> it now. I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm saying yeah. he probably knows Wherever he's at. But he just, he, he refuses to outright, he's just obstinate about it. He just, you know, he's hard, he's really hard. I don't know. Yeah. He said once the Holy Spirit's the only one that... And, and see, that see, that, that's... That, it hurts. You know. Theologically... The Bible teaches very clearly that left to ourselves, no one, no human being will ever choose God. We will reject it. We're rejecting it because we're blind. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't hear and we don't want to hear. We don't want it. Some of you remember before you were saved how you did not want to know it. You did not want to believe. Or you just plain didn't care. And somewhere God God did work and opened your heart and all of a sudden, boom. The way you understand this is you've got to understand the paradox. Would Christ have gathered Israel together? Yes. But they would not believe. They refused to believe. And they refused to believe in spite of him doing miracle after miracle after miracle and sign after sign after sign. They refused to believe. And it's interesting in Matthew, Christ said, if you would have known what day this was, but now it's hidden from your eyes. What day was it? Well, it was exactly 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. 490, 483 prophetic years to the day. Somebody did the math on that. I think it's 173,880. Take 30, 360 times 69 is what it is. Yeah. To the day. Because what did Daniel say? Six, after the 69th week, what will happen? the Messiah will be cut off, right? He said, if you'd have known what day it was, but now, it, now it's what? Hidden from you. Folks, here's the principle. Because you would not believe, now you cannot believe. You say, well, that God's not fair. Oh, God's perfectly fair, right? Our problem is we don't understand what fair is. 
Don't ever say that God's unfair. God's merciful, thankfully. We deserve nothing. Yeah, we deserve hell. All, none of us deserve anything good. God doesn't owe any human being anything. And Israel had opportunity after opportunity. And you see the, the, the crisis in, in Matthew here. He's talking about the culmination of the guilt is coming on this generation. Why? Because you, it's just like, it, remember this, the parable of the, of the vineyard, right? A man went out and he, he built a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he hired it out to husbandmen, right? Now what did he do when the harvest time came? His servants to get his share. And how are those servants treated? They're beaten, thrown out. <coughs> Finally, he said, you know what? I'm going to send my son. They'll surely listen to him. And how was the, the son treated? Yeah, see, legally, if the, hus if, if the owner of the vineyard died without an heir, it would go to the husbandman. So let's kill the heir. And what's Christ telling Israel? He's saying, you know what? I've sent you prophet after prophet after prophet. And in Matthew, what have you done? You've killed them. All the way from Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And there's several ways to interpret that. One is from the first person that died in the Old Testament to the one who was last. See, Second Chronicles was the last book in the Old Testament in the Jewish canon. And some say it's from, from A to Z. <laughs> Abel to Zechariah, all the way from the beginning to the end. What have you done to every prophet? You've killed them. You've stoned them. You've thrown them out of the vineyard. You wouldn't listen to them. Finally, what did God do? God sent his son. And what are you going to do to him? You're going to kill him. God gave you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And you rejected it and you rejected it and you rejected it. And finally, God has said, time's up. You know, under Noah, God gave man 120 years, didn't he? But one day, time was up. The day of grace was over. The opportunity for repentance was over. And look, wherever you land on the predestination election spectrum, you must agree that everybody who is in heaven, who is, or yeah, everybody in heaven, everybody who is in hell, and has heard the gospel, at one point in their life, did hear it for the last time, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that last time they heard it may have been many years before their death. But there was a last time in which they heard it. There was a last day of salvation. There was a last opportunity for response. And they didn't take it. And they might have lived another 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. But for them, it was too late. And that's what Christ is telling Israel. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. I would have. The problem of Israel is not me. I'm willing. The problem is you. You're not willing to repent. How is it that a person is saved? They have to look God in the eye and say, it's my fault. I'm guilty. I acknowledge my sin. 
I acknowledge my rebellion. And until a person is willing to acknowledge their rebellion, there is no salvation for them. God is willing to be reconciled to man. But if you don't acknowledge your sinfulness, how can there be cleansing? Because in your mind, you've not done anything wrong. The relationship with man and God was shattered in the garden. And until we look God in the eye individually and say, it's my fault, I'm a sinner. Will you please forgive me for my rebellion? There is no way back to him. And Israel was not willing to do that. They wanted a Messiah, but they wanted the Messiah on their terms. They wanted the Messiah to come in and to drive the Romans out. They wanted their Messiah to give them a welfare state to feed them. We're reminded of him feeding the 5,000, right? Feeds them and they go across the ocean, not the Sea of Galilee, not because they want to hear another message, because they want breakfast. And that's the way of the world. And see, the, 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 see understand, that is the way of rebellious men. You look, you look at your pagan neighbors and pagans that you hang around with and the lost that you rub shoulders with. What do they want from God? They want God on their terms, right? They want God to bless them, to help them win the lottery, to make them wealthy, to give them health. Which should tell you right then that every health, wealth, and prosperity boy out there is a false prophet because that's not what it's all about, right? That's not what it's all about. It's about repentance. It's about faith towards God. It's about looking God in the eye and admitting your sin and asking him to forgive you. It's not about what he gives you. It's not about what's in it for me. Because that's what Israel is saying. What's in it for us? We want our nation back. We want the Romans out of here. We want a physical kingdom. We want health, wealth, and prosperity. And Christ said, you're not going to get that. In fact, if you look at the health, wealth, and prosperity people back then, what did Christ, what did God say about them? Uh, they're, they're coming and saying they're talking for me, but I didn't send them. Remember under Isaiah, they're saying, peace, peace. Everything will be all right. God said, I don't know where they're coming from, but they're not from me. I didn't send them. Israel wanted a Messiah on their terms, and God does not operate that way. And Christ came and presented himself to the Israel as their Messiah, validated by signs and wonders and miracles. And they didn't want that. They wanted the power. They wanted the, the, the economic and the political freedom. But they did not want to repent of their sin. They wanted their life on their own. And see, that, that by the way, just understand, salvation, does it, does it cost you something to be a Christian? Everything, right? Is salvation free? Yeah, but it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. Christ saying, don't come to me and, and say, well, let me go bury my father. Let me go say bye to the parents. No, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. You want, you want me? You got to hate your mother, father, sister, brother. In your own life. You want you want me 
There's a price to this. You don't come to me on your terms. You come to me on my terms. Take up your cross daily, right? And follow me. And Christ is going to, and by the way, Christ is going to say that specifically coming up here. I was going to say, it's not uh, just the intellectuals that, that reject Christ, because most of the people that I, I work in the police department, I deal with prisoners and I deal with the, the cops, and there are very few intellectuals among either of those groups, and they reject God more out of an emotional thing. Right. Because like you said, they want the God that they want. <clears throat> Not the God who is. Right. And so they, they reject him and say, you know, my God wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. Or if there was a God, he'd let me, you know, have all these wonderful things, win the lottery, you know, yeah. all those wonderful things. And so they reject him more out of a emotional. And you know what? And what that is, let me tell you what that is. It's called idolatry. And we got to be careful as believers that we don't fall into it too. A lot of times we're many idolaters because if you have a if you have an invalid view of God, you're an idolater. That's what idolatry is, right? And that's why it's important to know who God is. When when you create a God that somehow owes you a good life, you're an idolater. Benny Hinn is an idolater. He's nothing more than an idolater. He's a false prophet and an idolater. He's no better than a witch doctor in feathers. Who thinks shaking a dead chicken will make you healthy? And you know he's no better. He, he's a witch doctor in a three-piece polyester suit with a hairdo. I mean, <laughs> he is. I mean, yeah, in his own private jet, you know. Yeah, with the congregation. Yes, yeah. But the whole point of it here is that. Israel wanted Messiah on their terms. And God says, I don't operate that way. You want me, you come on my terms. And they didn't want it. And so Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, presents himself to the people, goes to the temple to see has there been any repentance? And what does he find there? The money changers and business as usual. Nothing's changed. And as he looks out in Matthew over Israel, over Jerusalem, he, he cries. I would have gathered you. I would have done it. But you would not believe. And because you would not now is the day hidden from your eyes and you're not going to say Hosanna again until you see me coming in the second in, second time. And that of course is in Zechariah chapter 13 and 14 where Israel is going to recognize their Messiah and mourn and repent and then a fountain of forgiveness will be opened. But right now there's no repentance. There's no brokenness. There's no sorrow over sin. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remember that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. The, the disciples didn't put the passages together till after the fact. They remember, wait a minute. Remember that passage in 
the Old Testament. Remember, he walked it, he, he rode in on a donkey. Wow, how could we have missed that? They put it together at a later point. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Why were the people meeting him? Why were they crying Hosanna? Well, there was a crowd that had saw him raise Lazarus from the dead that were in there. And there was another one that had heard about it. And there was a lot of excitement thinking, this is it. This is the time. This is, I mean, he raised somebody from the dead. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world's gone out. They're, they're, they're in a funk when Christ rides in. Because now all of a sudden, they're, in their minds, the Romans are going to come in with their armies and we're done for. The people are going to try to make him king. We're going to lose our, our place. We're going to lose our nation. We're going to lose our wealth and our power and our prestige. These people traded, the Pharisees, they traded their eternal souls for prestige and power. What does it matter? What's it matter to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Now, there were certain Greeks among them who came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Certain Greeks among them. Who are these Greeks? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, they're... There were, this is called a God-fearer. Who's a, who's a good God-fearer in the book of Acts, remember? Cornelius, right? He was attracted to the Jewish religion because of their high moral standards and their, you know, you got to understand most of the pagan religions in that day were pretty decadent. And what's interesting, why do you think this has been put in here at this point? Why is John talking about the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus? I think because it's setting the stage and also placing the emphasis that the Jews have been set aside. And this is the beginning of the worldwide evangelism after God. The people who should have accepted Christ didn't. The people who should not have did. And so, you know what? That would frost the average Pharisee. Because the average Pharisee was taught since he was old enough to speak that God created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. You talk about pompous. You talk about arrogant. You talk about pride. The Pharisees said, in fact, the Pharisees said, I'm glad I'm not a Gentile 
a woman and a woman. That's how that's their prayer every day. <laughs> They're arrogant. And you see the Greeks here who came up to the feast to worship at the feast, they recognized the Messiah for who he was faster than the Jewish people did. And unlike the national leaders that rejected Christ, these accepted him, believed on him. What, what, did, what was the job of Israel in the Old Testament? What was their job? What, were they, what did God choose them to do? To be just witnesses to the world. Yeah, and what did they do? Thanks. Isn't it glad? We, are, are, am I glad I'm a Jew? Am, am I glad I'm a Jew? Pat their own back. They were the lineage of Christ to the coming Messiah. But their poor purpose was to be a light to the Gentiles, right? And instead of doing that, what did they do? God says, you know, it's interesting, Ezekiel. God says, you know, you're making me look bad. You're supposed to be a testimony and a witness to the nations. And you are so bad that I'm going to have to judge you. And when I do, you're going to make me look bad. Because the Gentile nations are going to look and see, well, if their God was so great, how come their army got beat by our army? Because see, the mentality in that day is if my army beats your army, my God's bigger than your God. And God says, my name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You make me look bad. You think Christians today make Christ look bad? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when God moves in judgment against them, people blaspheme the name of Christ. Look at look at the Baker scandal, the, the Swaggart scandal. These guys who, who name the name of Christ and they fall into some gross sin... And all you can hear on the Larry King show and the Phil Donahue show and Geraldo and everybody's how, well, there's just some more hypocrites. Make God look bad. Verse 23, but Jesus answered him saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of Wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Christ is saying, the time has come for me to be glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? What does it mean to be glorified? We, we toss that word around a lot, glorify. We need to glorify God in our bodies. What does it mean to glorify God? To honor him and make him first. Prime importance. Prime. You're hitting around it. To be what he intended us to be. Well, we glorify him when, we're, when we are that. And we know that Christ making him known. Making him you got it. That's what it is. Making him look good. You glorify God when you make God look good. And how do you make God look good? You act like he acts. You let people see what God is really like by the way you live. That's how you glorify God. 
You glorify God when people can see God in the way you live and the way you talk and the way you act. And Christ is saying that I may be glorified. Why? So that people may see who I really am. And how did people really see who Christ really was? What one thing set Christ apart and validated everything he said? His resurrection. It was the validator of everything he said. Glorify does not mean to just put on a pedestal and light up. Glorify means I glorify God when I display what God is like to people around me. When I display his character and his attributes. Why did God create the world? To glorify himself. What does it mean to glorify himself? To display his nature, his character. Why did God allow sin in the world? To glorify himself. How is that? Well, we understand about God's justice and love and mercy and forgiveness and grace by the having the sin exist, right? The opposite. If sin did not exist, would we understand the love of God? No. Would we understand his wrath? No. Mercy? No. Forgiveness? No. Justice? No. God allowed these things so that he might, we might understand who he is. And Christ is saying, it's time now for me to be glorified. How am I going to be glorified? The death, the burial, the resurrection. And I'm not going to be glorified to the people alive. I'm going to be glorified throughout all of eternity. When people see the love of God and that he laid down his life for his enemies. And that's why the death of Christ was so important. What better way to show God's selflessness than to die for his enemies? It's not all about you. And Christ is saying of a wheat, grain of wheat, a grain of wheat, you know, that, that's good to be part of a bread, right? But if it falls to the ground and dies, what does it do? It reproduces. And what's Christ saying? It's time for me to die that I may reproduce. The death of Christ was necessary because if it were not for the death of Christ, there could be no salvation, no forgiveness, no way back to God. Everything hinges on his death. And Christ knows that. It's time for me to be glorified in my death. He who, listen, loves life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does that mean? That means you come to me on my terms, and what are the terms? Give up your life. Lord, how do I pay for salvation? You can, it's free. What's it cost me? Ah, oh, just yourself. You don't come to God, and this is the important thing, there is a divine transaction. At the moment of your salvation, what does God do with all your sin? 
on Christ. What does he do with the righteousness of Christ? Places it on you. And it just so happens that the righteousness of Christ is a whole lot more than any of the sin you have. There is a divine transaction. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, you can come to Jesus and live your life the way you want to. Don't believe that. The God that saves you transforms you. And there is a cost. And Christ is saying the cost here is if you love your life, in other words, if you're trying to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you're going to get it. How do you win as a Christian? You give up. It is. You win by losing. And that's why the gospel is a stumbling block to the Gentiles. Because what are they? They're into power. They're into prestige. They're into um, image. And a naked guy hanging on a cross... Dying is not their idea of a conqueror. That's the way God ordained it. How do you win? You lose. How do you gain everything? You give it all up. How do you save your life? You lose it. And Christ is saying here, if anyone serves me, let him Follow me. Follow me where? To death. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him will my father honor. You want you want to serve me? You want you want to win? You give it up. You lose. Now listen, it doesn't take a five beta cap here to figure this out. When these guys get on TV and talk about coming to Christ, is their path to prosperity, wealth, and power, and prestige, and everything else. It is a lie from the pit of hell, because that's not what Christ is saying here, right? You want to follow me? Where am I going? I'm not going to the bank to cash the big check. I'm going to Calvary to die. I'm going to give my life up. You want to follow me? You follow me to the cross. And somebody comes along and says, no, God wants you healthy and, and prosperous and everything else. That's a lie from the pit of the hell. Turn the TV off, flip the channel. Because that's not the voice of the shepherd. You don't see Christ walking around talking about peace, prosperity, and, and, and follow me and I'll make you a Judean millionaire. Christ said, you want to follow me, you're going to die. If you're not willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, go away. If you're not willing to hate your father, mother, sister, and brother, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I don't want you. Leave. Go away. He's not calling people to come on, his, on their terms. He's calling them to come on his terms. And he says here, if you serve me, my Father will honor you. You give up by losing. And that's counter, that's counter to the world's mentality. 
You don't have to win. God's going to win for you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, right? And another, you know, just think about it. Christ said, if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what, what do you got out of it? What, what good's that? Think about that. If you had all the wealth in the world and you died without Christ, what would that value be? Nothing. Yeah. Everything you see, everything you touch on this planet is going to go to the great bonfire of 2 Peter 3, right? Someday it's all going to be burned up. And we put all of our value into that. What we think is so valuable down here is nothing up there. It's like the apocryphal story of the guy who found out he was going to die. And he was told, an angel said, well, you know, you're going to die, but, you know, God is, in your case, has made something special. You can go ahead. You can, you can send some stuff up to heaven so you have it when you get there. So the guy went out and he liquidated his vast sums of money, bought gold ingots, and had that sent to heaven. When he got there, somebody said, what are you doing sending pavement up here for? We got all the bricks here we need. Um, it's probably not a true story, but what we think is so valuable is not. Howard Hendricks said he was talking to a man, a very wealthy man, um, great success in business. So he looked at him one day and said, Howie, he says, uh, I spent my entire life climbing the ladder of success only to find out it was leaning against the wrong wall. It doesn't matter what you have in this life. You give it up. That's what Paul did, right? Pharisee the Pharisees. I'm a Hebrew, the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I, I, you know, concerning the zeal of the law, I was blameless. I, I was the top. And then I saw Christ and everything I put my value in, all of that stuff that I had pride in, that, that the Pharisees had their pride in. He said, I saw it for what it was. It was nothing but human dung. That was the word he used. And I trashed it all for the excellency of knowing him. And that's what Christ is saying here. You want me? You follow me to death. It doesn't mean that you're going to die, but you're willing to take that path. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is Christ in his humanity, shirking away. And you got to understand the, the, the horror of the cross to Christ had nothing to do with the physical torment. Nothing. You know, come, come Easter time, not Easter time, but, you know, we, we talk about, uh, well, Easter time, we talk about the death of Christ. You know, there's messages preached going through all the gory, gutsy details of the pain of crucifixion 
and the horror of crucifixion. Let me tell you something. That's not what scared Christ. That's what scares us. But that's not what scared him. What scared him was for the first time in eternity, God was going to turn his back on him. And nobody sitting in this room will ever, I can't even comprehend that. I can't, I can't get my head around the least notion of that. You ever stop to think, Brother Alan, that when the sin of the world came upon Christ and he died for that sin, God had his back turned against him. Christ understands the full reality of what it means to die lost without God looking upon you. Yep. That is that that's something that's just hard to imagine. We can't imagine that. We can't. It's our worst fear. Sure. We can't imagine that. And, and the point with Christ being eternal, Christ there was never a point in eternity that there was ever a schism in the Trinity. The harmony of the members of the Trinity is beyond our capability to, to understand. There was no arguments. There was no disagreements. There was perfect, uninterrupted, unadulterated, pure fellowship from eternity past. And for three hours on a cross, when Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, God the Father turned his back on his son. And if ever the Trinity was about to split, it would have been then. Christ knew what it was like to be abandoned. And Christ, when he's looking at the cross, that was the horror to him. That was the horror of the cross. Think about it. The perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God was going to take upon himself every rape, every murder, every lie, every deceptive, evil, wicked thing mankind has done through the centuries of all of them. He was going to take that upon himself. <coughs> he was trouble. And he said, should I tell the Father, this is why I came into the world. This is why I'm here. And he says, Father, just glorify your, your name. And it says a voice from heaven. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I've both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Christ said, the people stood by heard it and said, it thunders. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. It's not that I needed this voice. You needed this voice. Why? It's an affirmation that what I am doing is what God the Father wants done. That's what God the Father wants done. Why did Christ die? Who put Christ to death? Who killed Christ? God did. God the Father killed him. Why? The sacrifice for our sin. And what was the, when Christ died, what was the redemption price Paid to. Who was it paid to? Father. 
don't fall into this nonsense. And this is one of the things with the word faith crowd on TV. That somehow God, Christ had to die to pay off Satan. No, 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 no. He did not have to pay off Satan. Others say, well, Christ had to die in order to wrest control of humanity from the devil. No, 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 no. See, one of the problems in the word faith movement and the charismatic movement is God's not sovereign. He's bound by the devil. He, you know, he, they even teach that, you know, mankind gave dominion of the world over to Satan. And so God can't do anything in the world unless he outmaneuvers Satan. Look, God is sovereign. God can crush Satan like a bug. And Satan knows it. God is sovereign. Christ died as propitiation, the satisfaction for sin, to, to, as it says in Romans chapter 3, to declare the righteousness of God. God the Father killed Christ. Now, of course, from the human perspective, the Jews put him to death. But Christ died to be the propitiation of for our sins. What's propitiation mean? The satisfaction. The satisfaction for our sin. In Christ, yeah. He said he had the power to lay his life down and to pick it back up. Because it was given to him by the Father. Father. Why did Christ go to the cross? Because it was a will of the Father for him to do that. Should I ask you to take it away? No, this is why I came into the world. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's why I came. Verse 3, when now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Christ is saying, I need to be lifted up to draw all men to myself. This goes back to John 3, right? Talking about the bronze serpent. Again, again, he's talking about being lifted up. Why did he come into the world? To die. And what is that going to do? That's going to destroy Satan. That's what it means in verse 31 when he, when he dies and, and uh, his death is what he's uh, casting Satan out of the world. Yeah, ultimately, how does how does God, I want to say God gain victory. How does God defeat Satan through his death? How is death defeated? The through the resurrection of Christ. Christ had to die first to be resurrected to defeat the power of Satan, which is death. The power of sin. Christ won by losing. You know, it's sort of got to be a bummer being the devil, because no matter what you do, God's one step ahead of you. <laughs> and just when you think you've pulled it off, just when you think you've won, just when you get that little smirk on your face saying, I'm going to checkmate you in the next move, God says, no, you're not. Checkmate. No matter how hard you try to get one step ahead of God, he's always one up on you. Satan thought he was winning by crucifying Christ. He lost. The world thought they won. They lost. The Pharisees and religious leaders thought we finally got him to shut up. We won. No, they lost. 
oh, they weren't, you know, the game wasn't over there. They still had a few quarters to play, but it was, it was, they were done. They had lost. The people answered, and we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And they knew exactly what he was talking about, being lifted up. Wait a minute, isn't Christ forever? That shows their misconception of the Messiah. And you're saying the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? And there's confusion. They, they, they said they didn't understand it. And Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Notice how many times he says light, 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 light. What is light? It reveals the truth, right? It reveals that. John chapter 1 talks about in him was life and life was the light of man. First John talks about light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Christ is saying you have the light a little bit more with you. You better walk while it's light out because when the darkness comes, you're going to stumble. The Energizer Bunny was not around then. They did not have flashlights. When it got dark out, you couldn't see where you were going. Take advantage of the light while it is here. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. He left the temple for the last time. And of course, when you put together synoptics and you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and understand what's going on, Jesus, it's like Ichabod. Remember Ezekiel? Well, it's, this is the, back in Eli. But even in Ezekiel, remember when Ezekiel came, was given the vision of the temple and said the glory of the Lord came up off the mercy seat and went out the eastern gate and departed. Here you have God departing and, you know, figuratively from the temple. There's no repentance there. There's only rebellion. And what you see here is a judicial shutting up of Christ in the sense that Christ is basically said, because you've rejected, you've rejected, you've rejected, I'm done talking to you. No more talk. No more arguments, no more persuasion. Time's up. But although he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe in him. I'm tired of talking. And, and, and this goes back to this, this is why the Hebrews passage fits in so well here. This is Hebrews 6. They've been brought to the light. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've seen Christ. They've, 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 been, they've been exposed to what he is. And their conclusion was he's not the Messiah because he's not doing what we thought the Messiah should be doing. That's what it's saying back here in, in chapter, in, in verse 34. You're not doing what the Messiah should be doing. And the problem they, they would not consider is the fact that they had the wrong vision of the Messiah. 
They had a vision of the Messiah that wasn't real. And it says, that although he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Isaiah chapter 53. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Lord, who listened to us? The, answer, the rhetorical answer is what? Nobody. Nobody listened. And the arm of the Lord, what's that in reference to? His strength, his might, his power. Christ came and did miracle after miracle and sign after sign. And the only conclusion the Jews could come to was he's not our Messiah because he's not throwing the Romans out. He's not the Messiah we want. We want a different one. Therefore, they could not listen. Verse 39. They could not believe. Now look at that. How do you interpret the statement, they could not believe? You got it. Because they refused and refused and refused, they had crossed the line to now they can't believe. Because God's done speaking to them. You have to admit that unless the Holy Spirit convicts somebody of sin, they won't repent, right? So what if the Holy Spirit stops convicting them? You'll never repent. In that, in that verse, it says, in the uh, New American Standard, it says, for this cause, they could not believe in, in the King that the result was that they could not believe. Not, you know, they're, they're not believing. It's That's the result of something that they've done. And, and you go back and look at Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, Isaiah 6 is, is, is Isaiah's commissioning, right? Mm -hmm. You're the king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And, and, and you know, God's there and said, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, well, I'll go. And an angel comes and takes a hot coal and puts it on his lips. Now that would be painful, right? And what did God say? Go. But I'm, I'm, I just want you to understand something. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to believe. And they're not going to repent. Because their eyes are dull. Their ears are stopped up with wax. And why is that? Because Israel has refused and refused and refused and refused. And God finally says, okay, you can't listen now. You can't see, you can't repent. All right, fine. You rejected me, go your way. Leave me. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Well, that's not very Christian of God to do that, some people say. How dare God blind their heart? I thought he wanted them to repent. God does, but if you look, folks, if you reject and reject and reject, God might just say, fine. I won't bother you anymore. Have it your way. I'll leave you alone. I'll let you go your own way. I'll let you do your own thing. I'm not going to bother you anymore. And that's a scary spot to be in. I mean, you know, you got it's you know when you when you're thinking of 
being a prophet, you know, like Ezekiel, God says, how much I'm going to make you hard as flint and, and you're going to go preach to a rebellious house who rebelled against me. And they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to believe a word you say. That's sort of, who want to be that kind of preacher, right? Someone's going to be that day and age now where if you're going to be that preacher of the gospel, you're going to be that kind of preacher. Mm -hmm. Look at the world we're living in. It's not getting any better, is it? No. Is it going to get any better? If you read your Bible. First nine of Isaiah 6, listen to this. And he said to Isaiah, go and tell this people, Israel, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Go ahead. Keep on hearing, but you're not going to get it. Keep on looking, but you're not going to see it. Make the people of this heart of this people dull, their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Why? Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with heart their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste without habit, habitation. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and in forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. As a tenth binth tree or an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. The doctrine of the remnant. God always has his people. But what is basically going to happen to the bulk of Israel? They're not going to listen. They're not going to do it. Why? Because they would not believe. Now they cannot believe. So Isaiah, you're going to preach to them all day long. And it's not going to do a bit of good. Because their ears are dull. They're going to fall asleep. They're not going to listen. And by the way, that verse is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. That's a very important principle to understand. Israel had the prophets sent to them and sent to them and sent to them. And finally there came a day when God says, time's up. It's too late. Judgment is going to fall. You're not going to win. There came a day in Israel's history when they passed by that haven of safety. They drifted by. And God says, all you go look now for is judgment. But don't worry. I'm all, I, I still have a remnant. There's always a remnant. There's always a peace. But that's not going to be a lot. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Plus they should see with their eyes. Plus they should understand with their heart and turn and so that I would heal them. God says, I would heal them, but they don't, they don't, they don't, so now they can't. And they're going to get what they deserve. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, Isaiah 6. Nevertheless, verse 42, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. These are the people who believed what God, Christ said, believed in him, but they were still afraid of the Pharisees. Now, a good paper topic is were these really believers, you think? That's a good, that's a good one to consider. Especially when you think you're on that believe in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, we know Nicodemus was one of these, right? He was a true believer. There are a few, but not a lot. Now, why is this tossed in here, verse 42? I think it's tossed in here because it fits very well in with the last verse of Isaiah 6, right? In Isaiah 6, God is basically telling Isaiah, no one's going to listen. Their hearts are dull. They're not going to believe. He said, how long are they going to be in this state? And he said, until entire Israel is made desolate. Nevertheless, there will be there will remain a what? Stump. There's always a few. And that's what you see here. There's always a few. There's not a lot. The nation rejected him. But even in the midst of the national rejection, there were a pocket of people here and there who truly believed. God always has his remnant. It's not hopeless. Remember Elijah, I'm the last guy, I'm it. God told him, no, i got 7,000 other guys that have not bowed their knee to bow. Then Jesus cried out and it said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. If you believe me, it's not me you're believing, who you're believing. The Father who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who? Sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whosoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. This is Christ. This is his ministry. I came to bear witness of the Father. And if you believe me, you're believing the Father. If you see me, you're seeing the Father. And in fact, in Colossians, Paul says Christ is the icon. Icon is an interesting word. It means to stamp like a die, like a coin. He's the exact image of God. You want to know who God is like? Look at Christ. You know what God acts like? How did Christ act? And that's what he's saying here. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe in believe, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in that last day. Christ is saying, if you don't believe me, I'm not here to judge you at this time. Implied, who's going to do the judging? Yeah. And what is the Father given to the Son? And he's also given him in the last day the authority to judge, right? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. This is Christ's ministry in a nutshell. Christ said, I did not come down here to do what I wanted to do. I came down here to do the will of the Father, to give you the message that he gave me, to tell you the things he told me. If you receive me, you're receiving him. If you reject me, you're rejecting him. There's no ego in this. Christ is not saying, oh, you know, I, I wish you'd just believe what I told you. No, if you, were, if you don't believe me, you're rejecting the one who sent me. I'm just telling you what he said. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. By the way, that's what we should do, right? When people, when you give them the gospel and they reject, you know, we have this idea, boy, you know, I hate to witness somebody because they'll reject me. Forget that. That's bad thinking, isn't it? They're rejecting God. Don't, don't worry about you. 
Don't worry about your ego. Oh, man, they don't like me. No, forget it. That's, Christ didn't go around that way, did he? God has given us a message to preach. Preach it. And don't worry about people not liking you. They didn't like God. They didn't like Christ, did they? You'll find out real quick when you witness to somebody with the word, you know, you quote them scripture. It, it, it affects the believer and the non-believer. I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing because the one that doesn't believe, he does not want to hear the word of God. No. I mean, it, 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 you, can, you can witness to them all day long of what you believe, but the minute you start quoting scripture to them, it's going to upset them. Yeah. In a heartbeat. And then not only will it upset them, but they'll grow to dislike you in a very intense manner. Yeah. Well, they dislike Christ so much, they killed him to shut him up. Yeah. Okay, next week, chapter 13. And our test results and pizza. So. Any questions before we... I was in more preach mode tonight than I was in discuss mode. But. I was amazed reading, reading this week, too, how they even plotted to kill Lazarus because of what Christ did in his resurrection. Yeah. I mean, they even wanted to get rid of the But you know, Lazarus, you know, I read that and I got the impression he's walking around a billboard what God can do. You know? They didn't want to hear any of that. Yeah. Father, thank you for this night and for the time we've had to study. Help us to ponder this truth. Thank you for your word that teaches and enlightens. And thank you for our salvation and for yourself revealing the truth to us. We thank you for that. Bring us back here safely next week to study again. Again, thank you for this truth in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.